So as Pastor Chuck mentioned, my name is Tad Skinner, one of the pastors here. Uh, Glad to be sharing God's word with you. We're about two-thirds of our way through the book of Mark, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 11. So go ahead and turn there now, chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seats in front of you, and it's on those blue Bibles. It's page 495. So when our kids were younger, we were teaching them how to swim, and part of teaching them how to swim was uh, one of us would be in the water, and they'd be standing on the steps or on the side of the pool, and we'd be coaxing them to jump in to the water. And with both of our kids, their trust of us was greater than their fear of the unknown, and they both jumped in really quickly. Well, as they got older, we introduced roller coasters. And not the really big ones, but just the little kiddie roller coasters, you know. So uh, one of our kids immediately took to that and was uh, immediately wanting to go ride with me. One of them was much more hesitant and fearful of that. So this story can be used to illustrate several things, I'm sure. But one of those things that it can be used to illustrate is authority. Uh, At that time in particular, we were our kids' authority. We were telling them what was right and what was wrong, what was good. And uh, certainly swimming and roller coasters are good, right? Amen? So uh, we were telling them that that this was a good thing for them, that they ought to do this. And in one case, they trusted our authority. In the other, the results were a little bit mixed. Now, there's lots more examples you could come up with regarding authority in your life, I'm sure. But when I say the word authority, when you just think about that word, authority, what, what comes to mind? Well, for some of you, I'm sure that that your thoughts immediately turn positive, thoughts of protection or care from your parents as you grew up. And for others, it immediately turns more negative. You think of times when authority has been abused, when someone has been harmed, either yourself or somebody that you love has been harmed. And of course, there's different kinds of authority in our lives today. There's the authority of a boss or a supervisor. There's uh, the authority of a uh, third base coach waving somebody around to go home or to stay at third. Uh, You gotta listen to the authority of the third base coach. There's authority of the law even when no one is around. Uh, There's different types of authority. I've mentioned boss, supervisor, police, government, and ultimately there's the authority of our creator, of our God. So in a fallen world that we live in today, authority is a neutral word. Now, I say that despite whatever first came into your mind when you heard the word authority. Now, I understand that may be strange, but it's true. Authority is a neutral word. Authority can be very, very good, and authority can be very, very bad. It it really just depends on the character of the person who's wielding that authority. Authority depends, whether it's good or bad, depends on the character of the person wielding that authority. So today we'll see from Scripture that we can trust the authority of the one the Father sent because of his perfect character. And we'll see that by first looking at yet another attempt by the Pharisees to trap Jesus. And then second, we'll see Jesus tell the last of the parables in the book of Mark. So chronologically, we're just, it's hard to believe as we're about two-thirds of the way through the book of Mark, but we're only about three days away from the arrest of Jesus chronologically speaking, as we go through this. So reading first from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. And they, meaning the the disciples and Jesus, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. 
And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, does anyone remember what just happened just a few hours prior to this in our story? Remember what happened last week? Jesus caused quite a ruckus in this very place. And now he's just casually strolling through the temple. It's a bit bizarre when you think about it. Really pretty brazen, actually, that he would do this. Until you realize that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And if there's any place on earth that he ought to feel most comfortable, it's in the temple. The temple was the place of worship for God's people, the place that was designed for people to come to worship him, to bring their, their atonements to pay for their sin, to bring sacrifices to atone and pay for their sin, the place to meet God. And just a bit ago, Jesus cleaned house. He set things right. So imagine that, just for a second, that squatters have come into your house and they're doing profane things. Well, you would go in and you'd clean house too. And then as soon as everything was set right, you'd stroll right back into your house as though everything was normal because you have authority in your own home. That's how Jesus was acting here. He cleaned house, he went for a walk with his disciples, <clears throat> and then he came back to Jerusalem in verse 27. He heads to the temple and he takes a, a leisurely stroll through the courtyards. So if you understand who Jesus is, there's no reason to question him or his authority. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these, by the way, this is just Mark's way of lumping everybody. All of the religious leaders are, are being lumped into this group. So all of the religious leaders were questioning his authority, were doubting Jesus here. And so really, spoiler alert, the, the uh, religious leaders are looking for evidence, they're trying to gather evidence to use, bless you, to use at his upcoming trial. So they're getting ready for his trial, and they're trying to trap him. So let's continue reading, starting in verse 28. And they, the religious leaders, said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So let's make no mistake. Jesus has all authority. He's come from heaven to earth to save his people, us, from our sins. And the leaders who've been commissioned to care for his people are now questioning that authority. They're specifically questioning his authority to clear out the temple. That's what, in verse 28, these things and them mean. But I think it could really be extended to, to cover everything that Jesus has done. All of his miraculous wonders, all of his teaching, they're really just doubting his authority in everything. That he's done. So in other words, the leaders were saying, just exactly who do you think you are? Now, if Jesus answers that his authority comes from God, then Jesus opens himself up to a charge of blasphemy. And the religious leaders would then have him, and they can expedite his journey to the cross. They can speed that up. 
If Jesus answers that his authority is human and not from God, then of course he'd be lying. And so Jesus asked another question. And we've seen this method from Jesus before. And I think it's a bit jarring, isn't it, when we see this, when we see him do this? Uh, when I read his response, for some reason, I, I, I want to think that he's being rude, that Jesus is being mean-spirited here by what he says. But really, what he's doing was just a cultural tradition. He's not doing anything that, that culturally anybody would take as rude. The people of that time would not have seen what he was doing as being mean-spirited or rude. That's because this was a common occurrence among rabbis during that time. When a rabbi was asked a question, he would often ask a question in response. It was just a way to get at the truth, to try to get at the truth of, of the question that was being asked. So Jesus is using this, this cultural tradition to his advantage. Jesus is clever in a good way. He's, he's never caught off guard. He's always in control. He never makes a misstep. He never sins. He is God in the flesh. This is one of the reasons why we can trust his authority is because his character is good. So knowing that it was still not quite his time to be arrested and to die, he showed his authority over these religious leaders by asking them a question, by in some sense putting them off. So essentially he was asking the leaders whether John the Baptist, the prophet John the Baptist, was sent by God or whether he was just a crazy, locust-eating, wild desert drifter. And the leaders then knew that they were trapped. They had intended to get Jesus to admit that he was either that he was sent by God and thereby officially admit that he's a threat to them, or to admit that he was not sent by God and therefore thereby it would nullify his authority. So the trappers became the trapped by Jesus' question to them. And of course, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they refused to answer Jesus, and so Jesus refused to answer them. At least, he didn't answer them directly. We'll see in just a moment that he did answer them pretty abruptly. So let's remember that Jesus isn't afraid to answer. Again, when we read the parable, we'll see that he's, he's not afraid at all. But here, he's just showing his authority. He's, he's showing his authority over his own life, over current events, over the situation. Jesus isn't afraid to die. He's not afraid to stand up for what's right or wrong. His eyes are on the cross, and he just knows that this is not his time to die. It's coming soon, but not right at this moment. So before we move on to the parable, a, a moment or maybe a, a couple of moments of application for us just in what we've read so far. In reality, I think you would agree, in reality, the leaders didn't want to know the answer to the question that Jesus asked. They didn't want to know who this Jesus was. They could have searched deeply to understand. Jesus is right there. They could have understood who Jesus was. They didn't really want to know. They're unwilling to look further into it. They'd rather not even, they'd rather not even think about who Jesus is. And so the truth for us from this is that God is unwilling to commit to those who are unwilling to commit. If you don't really want to know the answers, if you don't really want to know him, then he's going to spend his time and his resources elsewhere. Now, let me flesh that out just a bit. If you're not a believer in Christ and you're here today, then this application is for you. You're here today, so at least there's some desire to understand. There's some desire to seek after God, to understand the things of God. 
But don't we see that the religious leaders were afraid? They were afraid of losing their power. They were afraid of losing what they treasured most. And if they really knew who Jesus was, then they'd have to give up what they treasure most, their power, their authority, their autonomy over their lives. And so they're unwilling to know. So what about you? If you're not a believer in Christ, what about you? Are, are there things that are keeping you from seeking to understand? Are there things that you're unwilling to give up? We must be willing to give up the things we treasure most in order to know the one who's of greater treasure than anything else that we could ever possess. Don't be unwilling to know. Don't be unwilling to commit. Don't be unwilling to seek after him. It's a great first step that you're here today. I would just encourage you to follow through on that and move from, from just being here to, to reading the scriptures, talking to another person in the room, talking to a believer about what you're hearing today, about where you're reading in the scriptures, seeking after him. There's no greater task before you than to seek to understand who this Jesus really is. And if you're a committed follower of Christ in the room, then this is for you as well you're a committed follower of Christ. You know Christ. You've been saved by Christ. But are we all too content to know Jesus at a distance, to rarely read our Bible on our own or with others, to, to gloss over the hard truths of Scripture and focus instead on things that we can easily agree with, to major on his love and to ignore some of the moral imperatives that we see in Scripture, to not think too heavily on his authority as our creator. We're, uh, Chuck, Pastor Chuck mentioned this in his prayer, we're, we're getting a, a fire hose of indoctrination and content from our culture today, through social media, through the news, all the time. And I think there's a, a danger for all of us, myself included, it's a danger for all of us to hold on tightly to something that we, we want to believe or some experience we've had or something that the culture says is true and then when we come to something in Scripture that runs counter to that, we do all sorts of mental gymnastics to try to make what we see in Scripture fit what we hold on to or what we're wanting to hold on to in the culture. Again, I think we all do this to some degree or another. And if that's true of you, then you likely have things in your life that you're unwilling to give up as well, just like these religious leaders. So I pray that we will seek him and understand what those treasures are, what we're holding on tightly to, what we don't want to give up. And that naturally, I think, leads us to this. I think when, when we say authority, one of the things that I think we, we struggle with or I struggle with is what does that actually mean? What does authority actually mean? Well, church, we as believers call Jesus our Lord, right? We call him, we call Jesus our, our Savior and our Lord. But have you ever thought about how does Jesus, how does God express his lordship over our lives? How does he exert his lordship? How does he express his authority in our lives? Well, the primary way that he does that is through his word. And if we ignore his word, then is he really the Lord or the authority in our life? Church, Jesus is our authority and he is better. He's better than our possessions. He's better than our, our so-called control over, over our sex life. He's better than our desire to stay within the lines of culture and not rock the boat over 
the supreme issues of morality that the culture rules over today, things like LGBTQ or abortion or certain rights. These are all things that the word speaks to. Jesus is our authority, and he expresses his authority in our life through his word. So what are you holding on tightly to? What are you struggling to give up for the one who gave up everything for you? There's, there's no greater task for us as believers than to seek, to find, and to understand who this Jesus really is, to trust in his good authority and his good character for us. All right, let's move forward in our passage. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12 as well. So changing chapters, but it's, this is the same story, same setting, same location. Jesus is still in the temple. He's still talking to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So it's just a continuation of what we saw at the end of chapter 11. So reading verses 1 through 12, he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Against them. So they left him and went away. So back in February or, February or March, one of our church members, Dr. Haney, preached a sermon that and in that sermon, he, he explained what parables are, what the purpose of parables are, what the structure of parables are. And essentially, he said that parables are stories that are used to emphasize a main point. So they're used to help us to illuminate or help us to see a main truth, a main point. So they're not allegories. So uh, many of you, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Some of you, how many of you have heard of Pilgrim's Progress? A few more. All right, so Pilgrim's Progress is probably the most famous book outside of the Bible. I think I read one time it's, it's uh, the most sold copies other than the Bible, at least in the English-speaking world. So it's an allegory. And in that story, you have the main character of Christian. That's the name of the main character. And he represents, in the real world, all Christians as they come to faith, as they experience persecution, as they go about their daily life resisting temptations, as they share the gospel. So Christian, in the book, allegorizes or represents real-world real Christians. So that's an allegory. But this, not everything in a parable, though, is supposed to represent something in the real, real world or in reality. 
But this parable, this parable might be the one exception to that rule. Nearly everything in this parable does represent something in reality. So I said already that this is the last parable in the book of Mark. It's the only one in the last half, the last uh, eight chapters of the book. And it seems that whereas many parables that we've read in Mark or in other gospels, many, many parables were very difficult for the readers to, or the hearers to understand. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that it was hard for the, the readers to understand? Because they would say, what? <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. And then what would the disciples do in the parables? Well, they would pull Jesus aside in private and they would say, I don't get it, Jesus. Explain this parable to me. But this one, this parable was very clearly understood by the religious leaders as being about them. There was no explanation needed. And to paraphrase Dr. Seuss, they did not like it. They did not like it one bit. So it was clear to them that they wanted, it was so clear to them that they wanted to arrest him right then and there. So what was it about this parable that they understood so well? Well, you remember that I said a moment ago that, that Jesus, we read a moment ago, Jesus answered their question about authority with another question. He kind of didn't really answer their question. The leaders understood this parable was an answer to the question that they asked in chapter 11, verse 28, when they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus' final answer to them is this parable. Now, to understand that a little bit further, let's go back to the Old Testament. We'll spend just a minute going back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screens. But we see in chapter 5 of Isaiah that Israel, God's chosen people, is referred to as a vineyard. Now, here's just a portion of that chapter. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So everyone in Israel knew that this chapter was about Israel. Israel was so closely identified with a vineyard that the Jewish coins of the day contained an image of a grape. And uh, somewhere in the temple, probably not far from where Jesus was, was actually telling this parable. In fact, some people believe that it was behind him as he was telling this parable. is a massive 105-foot-tall grapevine that had been embossed or, or carved, uh, engraved into the stone of the temple wall. And it was inlaid with gold. And so the wealthy Jews of the day would bring more gold so they could add into this engraving. So it was a source of pride to the Jews of the day. Everyone knew that God used the imagery of a vineyard to describe Israel. So now we see the similarities, chapter 5 of Isaiah. Go back to Mark chapter chapter 12, rather, and look at what's being said. Look at verse 1. It says, a man planted a vineyard. And that can be very reasonably read as God established Israel as his very own possession, a people for his purpose. And then look at the care with which he regards Israel. He puts a fence around the vineyard. In other words, he protects Israel. He digs a pit for the wine press. In other words, he he gives Israel the means with which to produce for themselves, to provide for themselves. He builds a tower. In other words, it's a way for them to defend themselves. 
Then he leaves the vineyard in the hands of those that he's entrusted to oversee the vineyard, to take care of it and to make sure that it flourishes. This is exactly what God did with his people, Israel. The tenants in this parable are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those who are tasked with caring for the the spiritual needs of the vineyard of Israel. And in verse 2, we see that the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to collect some of the fruits of the vineyard that he owns. But the tenants beat the servants, and so the owner sent others, and the violence escalated. Some were killed. Now, these servants in the parable can be understood as God sending prophets to the people of Israel to warn Israel that they were straying from God's good commandments and God's purposes. Now, these prophets were ignored. They were mocked. Some were killed by the leaders and the people of Israel. But then look at verse 6. Jesus' parable takes a turn from telling the history of Israel to prophecy. He begins to prophesy. In the parable, the owner sends his son, hoping that the tenants would respect the heir. But they took the son, they killed him, and in disgrace, they disposed of his body outside of the vineyard. Now that is exactly what will happen to Jesus in just a few days. He will be killed outside of Jerusalem uh, at Golgotha. And so it's verse 9 that really got the tenants, or rather the, the religious leaders' attention. So what will the owner do? What will the owner do? He will come and he will remove the tenants from his vineyard and he'll give it to others. And is that not exactly what happened? The gospel went first to the Jews and then when it was largely rejected, it was sent to the Gentiles, to everyone else. God's people, his vineyard, would would move from being a, a, a vineyard that was localized along the Mediterranean to becoming a global vineyard. So it's pretty pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's really a brilliant parable that Jesus tells to explain what was going on to the people, the people of God, the people of Israel. Now, can you imagine how furious the leaders must have been when they're sitting there hearing this? They're listening and they're beginning to understand as he's talking that this parable is really about them and that it doesn't end well for them. And then even beyond that, they're understanding that Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. We see that uh, as he is claiming to be the owner of the Son of the owner of the vineyard. So friends, when we treasure something more than God, when we believe that that treasure is being threatened, and then we begin to understand that we, we might lose what we treasure, we get angry, don't we? You can see why they wanted to kill him. The thing they treasured most, their power, their authority, was being threatened. And they were ready to kill him. They didn't want to lose that. But even further than that, after this, unbelievably, Jesus stays in town. Talk about not being afraid. He's not afraid to die. He's just essentially signed his death warrant in some sense. And he's staying in town. He's not going to leave. Jesus has all authority. He has all authority even over his own life. So we're reminded here that Jesus had been, had been slow playing the religious leaders for, for quite some time, for several months. His appointment, appointment with the cross was not to be had yet. And then, now, Jesus ups the ante. 
he essentially pushes all of his chips in. Essentially, he's calling out the leaders for rejecting God all along, for not caring for the people of God, for not obeying, for not seeing that God is the owner, that God is the authority. And verse 12 shows us that these leaders had had enough. They're ready. The following stories that we'll read and Mark will show that the, the proverbial gloves are off as uh, they begin to confront Jesus even more often. They're trying to trap him. They're, they're building their case against him. And Jesus is a little bit more blunt in the way he treats these Pharisees. He, he's calling out their hypocrisy more and more. Okay, so you might be thinking, that's a nice parable, Jesus. Good one. You got him. But... I'm not a religious leader, so what does this have to do with me? Well, what's here in this parable for us? Well, remember that I said that authority is a neutral word. Authority is good or bad, depending on the character of the person who's wielding that authority. So let's see God's character in this parable. This is really a, a beautiful, very short portrayal of God's character in his relationship with his people. So quick recap and retelling. God planted a vineyard. God planted a people to be tended to by religious leaders who would be the mediators between God and man. And those leaders were given that special responsibility by God. And then when these people needed extra tending, when they were straying in some way or another, God sent prophets to help get the people back to a healthy place. But those whom God holds responsible, those leaders and the people, they, they mocked, they ignored, and they killed those prophets. And so finally, the son was sent to the people. God came down to the vineyard. God took on flesh. Jesus came as the final word. We read about that earlier as a congregation, Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus came as the final word. So just as an aside, as a quick application for those of us in the room who are believers, who have been saved by God, do we, do we not see that we are far better off than the people of Israel? during that time. Our vineyard is far more well-appointed. We are far wealthier. We have more resources. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the Old and the New Testament. As Pastor Chuck mentioned, we live in the in-between time. The people of Israel during that time didn't, leave, didn't live then. They had not seen the cross. We have the Old and the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit who has come to lead us into righteousness, to lead us to repentance. We have a church family that is willing and able and wants to help us to grow. We have a church family that, that is united not just by geography, as the people of Israel were united. We have a, a people who are united by a shared hope and a shared belief. We're far more wealthy on this side of the cross and surrounded by so many witnesses who testify to his glory. So since that's true, there's really no excuse for a believer, me included, to have prolonged, and by that I mean months or years, prolonged seasons of sinfulness. Yes, we'll have dry seasons, of course. We, we all do spiritually have dry seasons, or at least I do, uh, times when we're not experiencing or not feeling close to God. But when we sin, we should repent. We have the word, we have the church, we have the testimonies of the saints of over the past 2,000 years that are leading us back to Christ, back to repentance. 
So, dear Christian, yes, we will sin. We'll struggle repeatedly with certain sins. But we have no excuse to not be fruitful. And so I realize that in a church this size, there's got to be uh, at least one or two who have some hidden sin, something that you've been struggling with for months, maybe even decades. Let's confess our sin to one another. Let's live in the victory that Christ has won for us at the cross. Let's live fruitful lives in response to the joys of the wonderful vineyard that Jesus, that God, has planted us in. So now back to the point of this passage. The authority of Jesus was questioned. Remember, we, we had them saying, just who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus answered their question. <clears throat> Jesus answered their question with a parable showing that he's the ultimate authority. He's the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. And we said that authority is only as good as the character of the person who's wielding it. So can we not trust the authority of our good God? In this parable and in history, do we not see the kindness of God and the patience of God and the faithfulness of God and the love of God and the wrath of God? And finally, do we not also see the grace of God? Now briefly, I want us to see God's character in this parable, but even more than that, I want you to see God's character displayed in your life, especially if you're a believer. So as I, as I do this, I want you to think about how these apply to your own life, and I'll try to help with that. But God is, is so good to us, isn't he? We see that here. He's lovingly planted a vineyard, meaning if you're a believer, he's lovingly called you to be his own. So stop a minute and consider how, how good it is that God has forgiven your sin and that he's called you to be one of his own. But not just that. In this parable, he's graciously put a fence around the vineyard to protect it. So how has he done that for you? you're a believer. So just one example, and you could think of many, I'm sure, but one example is that he's given his word. His word is our protection. It's our guide. It's, our, it's a, a light unto our feet that we might not stumble. His word puts a hedge of protection around us to keep us from sin and to keep us from harming ourselves, really. So how many times have we been protected from sin by following God's word? From sexual immorality, from relational strife, from anger, from greed. All of those things can be largely avoided as we follow his word. God is kind to us in so many ways. One of those ways is by giving us his word. And we also see the patience of God. <clears throat> We're a sinful people. And we see in history uh, that all uh, over and over again, God patiently sent prophet, <clears throat> excuse me, God sent prophet after prophet, to lead Israel back to him. So hasn't he done that for you by giving you, believer, a loving church full of people who God has used to bring you back to him? So think of those who've done that for you, who've helped you to be healthy and fruitful. God is patient in giving us believer after believer to help us lead us back to him when we stray. So perhaps you can think about people, perhaps even in this room, who God has used to help lead you back to him when you've strayed. And we see God's faithfulness. God promised Abraham and King David and many others that he would make for himself a people. And when we sin, 
God easily could have been justified in, in plowing up the vineyard and starting over. But he's faithful to keep his promises. Now, how many times has, has it been possible that he could have proverbially plowed you up for your sin? Thank you, Jan. I'm sure that you can think of several times when God could have plowed you up for your sin and started over. And then we see God's love as well. It wasn't enough that God sent us prophets. Those prophets had no authority, no power to save us from our sin. So he didn't just send us prophets, but in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world, he sent us his beloved son, knowing that his son would be mistreated, knowing that his son would be mocked and that he would be killed. And he did that out of love for us. And we also see the great wrath of God. God is holy, and we're not. And there's, there's ultimately a penalty for our sin. When we sin, there's a penalty for that. God does and will punish us. He has that right because he's the owner. He's done so many gracious and kind and good things, and yet when we don't show him that we love him by obeying his word, then we experience his wrath. Wrongdoing will ultimately be met with the justice of God because God is just, and that's something we should rejoice in. There is justice in this world because God is just. But even in that, God is also gracious. He sent his son to take our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve. Punishment for our evil thoughts, for our desires, for our actions, to take the wrath of the Father so that we might walk in freedom and, we, and that we might have eternal life with him. God is kind, he's patient, he's faithful, he's loving, he's wrath, and he's also gracious. God is good. God's character proves his authority is good. He's trustworthy and good. And we can joyfully follow his perfect authority. And one final thing before, before we close. I kind of glossed over this, and this is, I think, in some sense, this is the climax of the parable, really the, the climax of history. Look at verse 6 again. It says that he, the owner, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. And I think we have to ask, what kind of father would do this? Knowing that the previous servants he'd sent had been beaten and killed, and yet the father sends his son, and not just his son, he sends his beloved son. Who would do such a thing, and why? Well, because God the Father has a plan that trusts in the good character of his willing and obedient and perfect son. I began today saying that authority is, is a neutral word. Innately, I think that most of us know that there is a God. Most of us know and recognize that there must be a God. And so what you think about God will determine whether you think that his authority is good or his authority is bad. Believers, haven't we seen both in this parable but also in our lives that God is a good God? His character is, is pure it's, it's clean, it's pristine, it's, it's whiter than white. We have a God who loves us deeply, who is patient and kind, who planted a vineyard and was willing to do anything to protect those who belong to him. So all praise to our God.
And even more than that, we have a, a, a king in Jesus, the beloved son, who willingly obeyed his father, who lovingly chose to give his life so that we might live an eternal life with him. So all praise to our God and King Jesus. The great pastor of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way, talking about Jesus. He said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Our great God is so good to us. And so in response, let's just close by reading verses 10 through 11 as a response and then a final application after that. Read in verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So if you're not a believer here, Jesus is our cornerstone. He is, he is a worthy foundation to build our lives on. He's worthy of trust because of how he, he lived his life. And because of his great love and dying the death that we deserve. We're sinful, and he took our sin upon himself, died the death that we deserve. He, in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. Something that we don't deserve and we didn't earn. And yet he did that for us. And all we have to do is respond to his call on our lives. Respond to him as someone who is in need. Confess our sin. So won't you let what he's done for you be marvelous in your eyes? And if you're a believer who's here today, you've already believed the gospel. The truth of the gospel through God has saved you. But we still need that gospel today. Won't you trust God's good authority, even in the hard things of life? So when you get that cancer diagnosis, or when your marriage is rocky, or when your, your kids are struggling with anger or obedience or defiance, or when your friend or family member is coming out, or when uh, you're struggling with whether to have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when your relationships falter, when you feel lonely, when you're struggling with lust, we could go on and on and on. The things that we are holding on to and treasuring most are nothing compared to what God has to offer. And we can trust the authority of the one the Father sent because of his perfect character. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us and you have put us in a place where we are able to thrive. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word that protects us. We thank you for uh, these believers who are surrounding us that, that want to help us to grow. God, we thank you that you are of good character and that we can trust your authority because of who you are and what you have done for us and who you've shown yourself to be. So God, I pray that as we consider these words for, for the people that are not believers, that they would see you as marvelous in their eyes. And for those that are believers, that we would see that you are what we ought to treasure most above whatever the culture is saying, above whatever things that we are holding tightly to, that we would be willing to give those up and trust your good authority in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.